now from Luminary Media and the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I consider Jason Resign of the Washington Post a hero, as I do all journalists who put themselves at risk to cover stories around the world. In 2014, as the Post's Tehran bureau chief, he was seized by Iranian authorities and jailed for 544 harrowing days on trumped-up espionage charges uh, before being freed in a prisoner swap with the U.S. Now Jason has written a compelling book called Prisoner about that experience. I sat down with him last week at the Institute of Politics at a live podcast to talk about his experience in prison, uh, U.S.-Iranian relations, and the plight of journalists who were trying to do difficult jobs around the world in a time of decaying security uh, for freedom of the press. Here's that conversation. Jason Rezaian, it's so good to see you here at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago here on the Axe Files. you know, your story is so interesting to me. We should point out that your mom is here, who's a, a, uh, a, a native of the Chicago area, raised here. And a so, whole bunch of relatives yeah. also here tonight. And, and We know how to fill a room. Yeah. It's deceptive. You know, these, this is a hometown, hometown crowd here tonight. But you weren't brought up here. You were brought up uh, in Northern California. In Northern California. I did have two years uh, of high school in Wheaton, actually. Oh. So I'm, I'm familiar with the You're area. from here. Yeah. But tell me about your, your upbringing, because it sounded like a bucolic sort of... It was pretty great. Well, you know, we grew up um, about 15 miles north of San Francisco in Marin County um, on, a, on a big piece of land um, with... Uh, trees and a stream running through it and a couple of horses and some chickens. Um, you know, my dad was, was from Iran, uh, and my mom was obviously from the suburbs here. Uh, and it seemed like a really normal life to us, but it, it turns out it was, it was a little bit different than other people's. It was, uh, and, and your dad was in the, he, he ran a rug emporium. Yes, he was one of the first Persian rug merchants uh, on the West Coast, before, you know, oriental rug businesses was even a stereotype in this country. <laughs> we were living it. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, it w- w- it's interesting to me, you've talked about, written about how, uh, how things changed after the, uh, the revolution in Iran and the, the hostage crisis actually impacted on his, on his business. In a major way. I mean, I think uh, we used to talk about it that um, in the months leading up to, uh, to the hostage crisis in the fall of 1979, he was doing hundreds of thousands of dollars in sales every month. Uh, and then it ground to uh, an immediate halt. Um, for those of you who are of the age of remembering that period of time, uh, there was a lot of angst directed at Iranians at the country, but also Iranians living here in the United States. And I think for him it was incredibly jarring because he had come to this country in 1959, he'd been living here for 20 years, was a citizen, his wife was American, his children were American, he was American as far as he was concerned, um, and, and the situation turned on him, even in very progressive Northern California. Yeah, we've seen some of that lately as well how these things can turn in a very ugly way. He, uh, he uh, had the idea of giving the hostages who were released rugs, choices of rugs, so they came and chose rugs? Yeah, I think some of them phoned it in, uh, sent emissaries, and, and quite a few of them actually showed up at the shop. We have pictures of, of some of those hostages and me as a little five-year-old kid and my big brother who was about 11 at the time. Um, and actually... One of the former hostages who had a very long career uh, at the State Department after his release has become a friend, and uh, he lives in northern Virginia, and every time I go and visit him and his wife, 
uh, at their home, he points to the, the rug in the corner and says, your dad gave me that one, and he kicks it over, and there's the Rezaian Persian rug uh, label on the back of it still from 40 years I, ago. I don't want to jump ahead in the story, but uh, was he helpful to you in adjusting when you came back? He and others have been incredibly helpful. Um, not only hostages in Iran, but other journalists who've been held captive. I always have to give a shout out to my friend David Rode, uh, mm -hmm. who was with the New York now Times. Now at the New Yorker. And now at the New Yorker, who was held by the Taliban uh, for many months and escaped. He was the person that, uh, in the weeks after my release, was really the most influential in telling me, you're gonna be okay, but here's the roadmap to, to recovery, and it's gonna be a long one. You, uh, you, you became a journalist, but you weren't necessarily headed in that direction. You spent uh, a couple of years at uh, Jesuit University in San Francisco, and then uh, you went to the New School in uh, my native town of New York City, uh, which is a pretty interesting place. You studied stuff like jazz, mm -hmm. reggae, yep. uh, but also uh, you took a course from Christopher Hitchens, kind of a legendary uh, public intellectual and journalist, uh, and he influenced you. In, a, in an incredible way. I mean, I knew that I wanted to write uh, and do it for a living. I just didn't think it was actually gonna be possible, and he was one of the first people that told me that if this is the thing that you think that you want to do, maybe it's not for you. But if it's the thing that you know is the only thing that you can probably do, uh, then it is for you. And that's, uh, that's the way he felt about it. And so I, you know, I spent a lot of time with him uh, in the semester that I was a student, but more so in the years following. I'd, I'd seek him out. His, his in-laws lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, so I'd visit him there, and I'd come to Washington to see him from time to time. And I don't write about it in the book, but we actually took a trip together to Iran, um, which was, I think, probably the, I'd been a dozen times before, but it still sticks out as one of the seminal experiences for me in, in becoming a journalist. You, uh, you, you, you talked about your many trips, but uh, you, you didn't, as a child, travel there this was, you, you really started this in, when you were graduating from college. Yeah, I was 25 the first time I went to Iran, and I, I didn't grow up speaking Persian. Uh, I had a large, extended Iranian-American family, and I was exposed to the language and the traditions, uh, but um, it wasn't until I was a bit older and got that infamous travel bug and started going to different parts of the world that I really wanted to go and see what what Iran was all about. Um, and what, what, what were your initial impressions when you got there? What surprised you? Well, I think like other countries that are isolated for whatever reason from American view, uh, the realities on the ground are really different than, uh, than what you hear about. And when we're talking about uh, countries that are run by authoritarian governments like Iran or Cuba, which I had traveled to previously, the things that we um, believe are wrong with those countries are not the things that are actually wrong. I mean, the, the threat that an Iran poses to the, to the world is to its own people. It's not to our American way of life. So, you know, I, I found a very vibrant society, a one where there was a lot of internal debate about the direction that people wanted the country to go, and frankly, a really young country with a lot of energy. And uh, I think anybody that's been there, um, I have a friend from Tehran who's actually in the audience tonight, um, will tell you that uh, you know, it's, it's a much more lively and, and cosmopolitan place than, than we give it credit for. You, you say uh, Iran doesn't pose a threat, it poses a threat to its own people, and that's well understood, but there is this adventurism throughout the Middle East. There, it, it, it poses a threat to its own people and its neighborhood, mm -hmm. but I, I defy you to tell me how it poses a threat to our collective way of life here in the United States of America. You, uh, so you made many trips in the, in the first decade of this, uh, of this century, in the 2000s, um, and then in 2009, after the financial crash here, 
you, uh, as, as much as, a, uh, as anything, made a, f a financial decision that you were running your father's business and you didn't see a whole lot of upside to the rug business after had the rug pulled out from under you. It's literally. I yeah. mean, it, that was not a moment uh, when a lot of merchandise was moving. And um, I was facing certain uh, bankruptcy. Um, I had a small body of journalistic work that I had amassed over uh, a decade period and thought to myself, here's, here's a chance. I mean, I was 33 years old. Um, my resume was filled with uh, basically Persian rug merchant and sometimes freelance correspondent. Uh, it wasn't like Google or any of the other tech which, companies which in San Francisco. Which goes together perfectly. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, so I, I made a very calculated decision and I, I, moved, to, uh, I moved to Tehran uh, 10 years ago this month. And you moved there at a very, very uh, eventful time. Uh, they, they, they had an election campaign uh, going on that turned out to be one of historic proportion. I will be the first to admit that I didn't think that that campaign and the election in 2009, which is still being contested, um, nobody, including me, predicted how that would go and uh, what a volatile moment would be uh, and also what a kind of career opening it, it would be for me. I started writing about that campaign uh, Set it up for us, talk about Yeah, so, you know, this is May of 2009. Uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who you all remember, was running for his second term in office. Uh, there was a reformist candidate who uh, was building up a lot of steam and popularity. Iranian um, electoral cycles are thankfully much shorter than ours. They only yeah, last three or four weeks. Are, yeah. yeah, it's about three weeks. So, you know, a lot happens in a very short period of time. And it became clear that Ahmadinejad was probably going to lose. Um, and on the night of the election, it was announced that he won in a landslide and nobody still uh, accepts that decision. So there were massive yeah, street posts. Chicago elections used to be. <laughs> you said it, not me. <laughs> I'm a local, I can get away with that. Um, so, you know, the protests began very quickly and, and spiraled out of control. Uh, and I was there to cover them from the ground. Um, and it, it really opened up an opportunity for me that I hadn't had before. Uh, and in the five years after that, I was never out of work. You know, I want to ask you about that because I was sitting in the White House during that period. Uh, we had just taken office. And there, was a lot, there were a lot of discussions about how best to respond to events there, and the president was counseled to react in a way that was low-key so yeah. as not to become a, a focus of the regime's uh, attention and anger uh, so they couldn't depict the reform movement as a tool of the American government. Uh, was that the right thing to do? Look, I think... We can uh, make a lot of fresh decisions in hindsight, and I know that the administration took a lot of heat for, for not being more vocal at, at, at the moment. But the reality is that, you know, for the past uh, 40 years, 30, 30 years up to that point, we had very few windows into what was actually going on in Iran. If you think back to, you know, the Cold War um, and our relationship or non-relationship with the Soviet Union, we always had reporters on the ground, we had diplomats on the ground, and we had better intelligence. And I think that that was a moment where um, we were caught flat-footed, right? We didn't expect that to happen. Uh, and, and the response, uh, I think, could have been more vocal in, in support of reformers. But how could you have known what the right thing to do was in that moment without uh, a cadre of... of uh, of diplomats and other uh, professionals telling you what's going on on the ground. Yeah, well, I guess that's what the CIA and other organizations are there for. But um, and, and let's make it clear, I wasn't working for them. No, I understand. <laughs> We're going to get to that point. Yes, exactly. That How many times me. did you say that? <laughs> um, you were asked to, uh, and I don't want to be, uh, you know, I think we ought to point out it's very hard to penetrate um, 
some of these uh, closed societies, and uh, and you know, so I, I don't want to. In, there's been enough denigration of the intelligence community lately. I don't want to join in that. But um, you, you, you talked about the, there was a lot of heat on the administration. There was a lot of heat on you after that election. You got called into the state security office. Uh, and what was the message you were given? The message that I was given was you can't work anymore. You got to stop, shut it down. You should leave the country. And um, I was there an explanation for why, or was it obvious? I mean, it was it was fairly obvious. We don't want coverage of what's happening here. Uh, and two, uh, if you stay, bad things might happen. And to you, to me, and to others, you mm -hmm. know, uh, at the time, uh, Iranian elections are, are usually a time when uh, more journalists are allowed in the country than than at other times of the year. Uh, there were several dozen and probably half a dozen who were based there full-time. Um, and so I left for, for a couple of months. Went to Dubai. I went to Dubai, um, which, you know, ended up being where I found my wife a yeah, few weeks later. Yeah, like every good story takes a turn like this. Yeah. So I met a girl. I, yeah. And, um, and, and she was from Tehran and happened to be visiting uh, Dubai where... Um, she and her older sister could kind of take a breather from these protests that were, were consuming life in, in Iran, and we had a chance encounter, and um, we've been together ever since, and it gave me a reason to go back to Iran. Yeah, yeah but when you went back, uh, were, what, were, what was your level of concern? Because you picked up your reporting career right away, and she, she also yeah. is a journalist. So I, I, I was in constant contact with the press ministry in Tehran, and they kept saying to me, you know, you're more than welcome to come back. You're a citizen of this country. I'm, I, I hold dual citizenship. You can come back any time, but you're not going to be allowed to work. And every few weeks I would, you know, call again and say, you know, is it time to come back? And they said, no, no, you're welcome to come back. You just can't work. And then one day I showed up at the office and the secretary's face went very pale. And she said, what are you doing here? It's very dangerous for you here. I said, you told me that it's my country, that I can come back, but I just can't work. She said, yes, yes. I didn't mean it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that's the, the kind of honesty you want. Yeah, exactly. I wish you could have given that to me on the phone. Um, and, you know, I, I played by the rules. I always, in my working uh, years in Iran, played by the rules because I understood that um, to not do so meant that uh, I might suffer a different kind of fate, either being removed from the scene permanently, thrown out of the country, or thrown into a cell. And the reporting, a lot of the reporting that you were doing was not uh, sort of political analysis of the situation. You, you were trying to convey Iranian society. Uh, uh, obviously, that was part of what you, uh, what you did, but... Um, Look, I, I came up with a sort of recipe for myself. The, um, the proclamations that authoritarian leaders make in a press conference are the same things that they're gonna say when they give a speech, are the same things that they're gonna say to you in private, you know? Uh, so uh, AP and Reuters and everybody else covers those things. I'm gonna go out and see how this, these proclamations affect the normal people on the street. What's life really like? We're missing a window into this society. Can I provide one? And, and that's what I, I took as my own personal challenge and what I tried to do for those years. Along the way, um, <clears throat> uh, a lot of Americans came to uh, see you in uh, an Anthony Bourdain uh, episode on, on CNN. Uh, and I noticed your book is on his imprint. Um, you know, tragically, he's not with us uh, any longer. Tell me about that experience. What, how'd you decide to do that? And were you concerned about becoming more high profile? I wasn't concerned at all, actually. For years, uh, I had been communicating with the producer on an earlier iteration of his show 
about them coming to do an episode when it was still on the Travel Channel. And uh, the, the, the network's insurance would not cover a team to go to, to Iran. Um, but when he joined CNN, the equation changed. And actually, um, they didn't contact me until just a couple of days before they were going to come. Uh, and one of the producers got in touch and said, you know, we heard that you're the guy to talk to uh, about finding a decent um, meal in Tehran. I said, well, <laughs> Why would they at think pictures that? pictures of know. me on, on Facebook <laughs> or something. Uh, I didn't take any offense because it was true. Um, and, you know, I gave them a whole list of, of places that I thought would be evocative uh, restaurants, but also neighborhoods and experiences that they could um, capture. And... Um, and I told them, I said, you know, um, my wife's not much of a cook. She is now. She's an incredible cook, actually. But, you know, my, my mother-in-law... Obviously, she's, she's an Axe-Files listener. <laughs> I know she jumped in right away. <laughs> she, you know, my mother-in-law is a fantastic cook, and we have a, a really nice kind of traditional home. If you guys want to shoot here, uh, you'd be more than welcome to, to do that. And they, they were kind of not interested and then all of a sudden they said well would you and Yegi my wife uh, join us for a shoot in a, in a restaurant and we said yeah of course and, and to me it, it was not something that uh, was alarming in terms of raising my profile for me this was just sort of uh, validation of the kind of work that I've been doing for years and the fact that our most uh, intrepid television personality was in uh, the town that I called home and wanted to include my wife and me in, in his showing of that place, um, I, nothing could have been better. And do you think uh, that was an irritant to... I don't think it was at all. And I think, if anything, um, the, the fact that that episode aired and aired so often um, during my imprisonment and that Anthony Bourdain became such a vocal proponent of our freedom um, made a difference, and in a positive way. Uh, and, and he's no longer around to, to talk about this, but I had the opportunity to, to kind of calm those fears, because of course he had heard from a lot of people that it must have been because uh, Jason was on your show that he ended up in prison. Um, and it actually never came up in my interrogations. July 22nd, 2014 is when this nightmare, these, uh, these days of imprisonment began. Uh, how, did it, how did it begin? So we were preparing to, uh, to take a trip to the U.S. We'd been married for 15 months, and, uh, you know, I did all of the the um, paperwork to, to get a green card for Yegi. Uh, and her green card was ready. I had just come back from several days of uh, covering nuclear negotiations in Vienna, uh, which at the time the negotiations were starting to reach a climax. Uh, and so this was a, a great moment in our lives, in our careers. You know, we were two-fifths of the English language media in, uh, in Iran. Uh, my beat was expanding. And we should know. point out, you, you were a freelance journalist, but in we, 2012 you became, I became the correspondent for the Washington Post. Yeah, so you know, we were on, on a really nice uh, rise. Um, and the, 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 that day, on, on the 22nd, I got a frantic phone call from my wife saying, you know, I've received this really strange email um, demanding money, uh, and if if they they say if I don't pay, um, they're going to expose me and you, and I don't know what's going on, but somebody's messing with us. And I was out trying to cover a story, and I made my way home. And by the time I got home, it was clear that our our email and social media accounts had been compromised. Passwords had been changed. We'd been locked out of those. Um, sites. So we contacted a friend of ours who helped us do IT 
and um, he was able to regain access and we thought secure our network. And we calmed down and we kind of thought about what we were gonna do when we were supposed to um, spend the evening with our in-laws, with my in-laws. Uh, my mother-in-law was having a birthday party. Uh, and as we left the apartment, we went down in the elevator in our, in our high-rise to the garage. And as the garage door opened, there was a man standing there with a gun pointed right at me. And he said my name. Um, and for those of you who have not had a gun pointed at your face, uh, it's a very jarring experience. Um, you have a gift for understatement. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, you know, he and several other plainclothes agents forced their way into the elevator. They took us back up to the apartment, made us, you know, let them in. We went into the apartment. They, they separated us. They began ra ransacking the place. More and more agents showed up. Pretty quickly, you know, there was probably 20 of them. All of them had surgical masks on to hide their identities. They made us give up our, our new passwords to, to our accounts. They took our devices. They took our identity cards. Um, and then they said, it's time to go. And, you know, at this point, there's, there's, there's no explanation of what's going on, what we're being accused of, what's happening. Um, they walk us out of the building uh, into a courtyard where there's a fountain in front of the house. And, you know, our neighbors are there. It's, it's it, you know, it's the walk of shame, really. I mean, you realize in a country like Iran, this sort of thing happens sometimes. People don't get involved. You know, they just know that you're being hauled off to an uncertain fate. Um, we were put in a van with tinted windows in the back, uh, handcuffed and Together. Blind, together. Uh, handcuffed, blindfolded, and then taken to prison, which was... Uh, Fortunately, only a couple miles from where we lived. Um, separated. And what was going through your mind? I mean, my, were you talking to each other? No, we were told that we, we weren't allowed to talk. You know, be quiet. Everything will become clear when you arrive. We were separated immediately. Um, I was taken into a, a large room. I knew it was large because I could hear other people breathing and there was a lot of milling around. And... Uh, you know, I'm still behind a, a blindfold with handcuffs on, and very quickly, this voice starts telling me that I'm the head of the CIA station in Tehran. And, you know... So you got a promotion right there. Yeah. First I was a freelancer, then I was correspondent, <laughs> yeah. then I'm station chief. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, my, my Farsi's pretty good, um, but doing it uh, under duress, blindfolded with handcuffs on, I was stammering quite a bit, but I just kept saying, you know, you're making a mistake. I'm, I'm a journalist. I'm just a journalist. And he, he said to me, and this should have been the first cue, uh, you know, just a journalist has no value for me. Huh. Uh, I mean, this was the first uh, tip that I was a part of this long line of American hostages of the Iranian regime. Um, so that was, that was the, the beginning of it. They said, if you... Just admit to everything that you've done right now. Uh, you'll go home and you'll board that flight to the United States of America, but you'll be working for us. <laughs> I'm just thinking to myself, this is the craziest, dumbest yeah. sounding stuff in this my life. This would be a good book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I wish I had a pen or a voice recorder <laughs> or something. Um, and... Uh, and, and he said to me, he said, you know, he's, he's obviously scared, uh, and he's not cooperating, but give him a month, he'll start talking. And I'm thinking to myself, a month? There's no way I'm gonna be here more than two or three hours. Um, and, and then they processed me, took my mug shots, took my clothes, gave me some very uh, nondescript uh, blue pajamas uh, and, and took me to um, a little cell that was about half the size of the stage that you and I are on right now. For our listeners, this isn't a very big stage. So. Yeah, no, this cell was uh, about four and a half by eight and a half feet. Oh, my. Um, and, you know, I, I could lie down in one direction and not the other. I'm not that tall, but, um, yeah, it was, it was tiny. And... 
um, the lights were on 24 hours a day. Um, How long were you kept in solitary confinement like that? 49 days. My wife spent 72 days in solitary confinement. Um, and then she was, was released conditionally and was essentially under house arrest until I was released. But um, yeah, it, it was an incredibly jarring experience. Talk, talk a little bit just about the sensory impact of, of being in solitary confinement with the lights on 24 hours a day. It, it kicks in immediately. I mean, you, know, you are confused. Um, you start to lose track of time, days. Fortunately, I was able to find a pebble and started carving numbers in the wall, you know, rows of four with a diagonal line, just like you imagine. I mean, that's what people do. It's what hundreds of people had done before me in the same cell. I could see the, the numbers um, piling up. Um, and, you know, you, you don't have access to anything, you know, People ask me about it. They say, well, did you have, you know, TV or books or anything like that? I said, well, not in solitary. I mean, right. the, the, the essence of solitary is, um, is to disjoint you from reality. Uh, and also, they were, frankly, starving me. I mean, I was probably living on five or 600 calories a day, You which lost is about fine. 50 pounds. Yeah, I lost 50 pounds in 40-something in, in days. Um, and, you know... We are still bemoaning the fact that, uh, that I've, you know, lost my prison body. We're trying to get it back for summer 2019. <laughs> there are easier ways to do it, yeah, my friend. But actually, no. There's, 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 <laughs> that's the easiest way um, so, that I've found, yeah. So uh, while you were going through this, you must have wondered, A, what was going on with your wife? Did you know? No. I had no idea about what was going on with her for the first 35 days. And I think, to me, that was the ultimate uh, torture yeah. of the situation. And, and they, they do all of this on purpose. They know exactly what they're doing. Uh, and in the meantime, they're not giving you any information. Uh, they're saying, you know, your, your, your wife is cooperating. She's telling us everything that, you know, you've been doing. Uh, other days they're telling you um, your wife has been released or we don't know where she is. I mean, it's all just designed to make you go mad. And did, and did you uh, wonder whether people knew where you were and exactly what the U.S. government knew, what your newspaper knew? Yeah, I, I, I was desperate to know. And my interrogators would say, you know, we reported that you died in a car accident. Um, and nobody's doing anything. The Washington Post doesn't care because you didn't really work for the Washington Post. Your mother was upset for a few days, but she's moved on with her life. <laughs> uh, <laughs> doesn't sound credible. <laughs> she's uh, a very resilient woman. <laughs> um, and uh, you, had a, you wrote about your relationship with your interrogator, which became quite involved. I spent more time with him during that year and a half than I did with anybody else. And um, for those who know me, I build relationships with people. I mean, that's what I do. And um, I didn't see any other option, right? I mean, uh, I needed to figure out what made this guy tick so that maybe I could glean something from him from time to time. He probably was thinking the same thing. Hundred yeah. percent. You know, and I, I, I knew that. So you know, you end up learning how to make multiple sets of mental books, and you know, I developed a mantra over time. You know, whatever they tell you to do, do the opposite. Right? If they tell you that it's uh, bad for you that your newspaper and your family are making a lot of noise uh, out in public probably means that this is the best thing that people can do. Um, so, you know, I, I got very good at acting. And, uh, um, I mean, I, I could turn on and off the tears like nobody's business. I can't do that now, you know? You just, you come up with these defense mechanisms to get through a situation. Um, and, 
And I think I did, a, you know, as good a job as I can imagine that I would have been able to do. And all the while, they wanted you to confess to espionage? I think that they wanted me to confess, not because they thought that I did anything wrong, but they wanted to be able to make this sort of audacious, massive public display at a time when the nuclear negotiations were becoming so close to finalized, the people that had taken me were the domestic opponents of that deal. Um, you know, they wanted to, to do whatever they could to scuttle it before it ever happened. So having an American newspaper correspondent coming on television and saying, yeah, you know what, I'm, I'm the CIA spy and I'm the architect of the sanctions on your country and, you know, I'm Obama's right-hand man. That's what they wanted me to do. And it just, you know, wasn't what I was going to do. You, 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 you know, this is an interesting point because uh, so often in kind of casual discussion about Iran and this nuclear uh, agreement, uh, there is a, a, some sort of the assumption that we're talking about a monolith right. here, but there are very, very sharp divisions within Iran on the wisdom of having made that agreement and... Uh, and the only thing that they can all agree on is that they want to keep something called the Islamic Republic intact and hold on to the power that they have. Um, everything else is kind of up for grabs internally. And I think that there, there are huge disparities in what different factions uh, see as the best way that, that they can do it. And, um, you know, it's a pretty nasty internal politics. I mean, you know, I don't know about Chicago. And I know I'm not, it's to, not I, that nasty. I'm starting to know a little not, bit not, about Washington, not, but not these, these guys are really nasty. Um, at what point your uh, interrogator suggested to you that um, your mission was to um, change attitudes about uh, America in Iran uh, to, uh, to make it easier for Americans to infiltrate Iranian society. So that speaks to the fact that you, the perspective was very much uh, from, the, from the right. Right, exactly. And I think that, that you know, they also didn't want to see the image of a uh, menacing Iran diminished in America, right? You know, they, they like the enmity that they have and they want to keep it intact. Um, you, you were taken out of uh, isolation. First of all, when did, you first, when did you see your wife for the first time? On the, on, I was the 35th day, so uh, five weeks, is that right? Yeah, five weeks into it. They told me after an interrogation session that you're going to see your wife. I said, when? They said, right now. And they said, well, you, you got to let me prepare. You know, I said, no, you're going in this room and you're going to see your wife and uh, don't cry. Um, <laughs> uh, and um, You probably and, didn't have to even fake crying at that point. Well, but, you know, I, I did have to fake not crying because uh, mm -hmm. it was a really, um, you know, I, I think about it now as probably... The, the best moment in my life because I had been so concerned and worried and um, nervous about where she was, what condition she would be in, um, how she would have felt about me at that point. And uh, she, was, she was brought into the room blindfolded. Uh, they took off her blindfold and there we were. Um, we had four minutes together uh, she was um, elated, but also horrified to see this kind of shadow version of me. Not only was I thin, I was very pale because I hadn't been outside much. Um, I think my hair was, my beard and hair were pretty, you know, I wasn't clean. Um, but it was the first sort of injection of hope um, and I realized then that I had to look for those injections of hope whenever I could find them. And how many times did you see her over the course of those 544 days? I, as, after she was released uh, 
they allowed her to come and visit me uh, once a week. Uh, and then at one point, those visits were cut because um, I tried to smuggle a letter out to my mom and my brother, trying to get them to do more. Uh, and they, <laughs> and they were doing that. They were doing. They a were lot. doing everything. They were doing everything. But you know, we couldn't see that, and you know, Yegi couldn't see that on on television, and you know, the, the Washington Post was not very um, uh, vocal about their efforts wisely. Uh, but as you know, I mean, they were spending a lot of time uh, at the White House and the State Department doing everything they could to figure this out. Your brother was on the road, I read, 200 days. 2015, he spent 200 days away from home. I think he, he flew to, to Washington and from San Francisco 20 times back and forth that year. Um, How much do you think that your situation was complicated by the negotiations over the uh, nuclear agreement? Well, I, I think that they got me arrested and they got me out, right? I mean, if there was no negotiation going on, there would have been no reason to take me in the first place. Um, at the same time, the fact that I was arrested uh, without uh, an active negotiation process, I would uh, have not been released. And we can look at it right now. There's six Americans sitting in prison in Iran. There are no negotiations going on right now. And you know, I've written about this fairly extensively because I feel a responsibility to those people that are still being held there. Uh, but I worry that since the current administration pulled out of the nuclear deal, uh, there's not a lot of a opportunity and there's no, there, there's not, a, politically, uh, you know, the, the Trump administration talks about their maximum pressure campaign on Iran. Unfortunately, it seems to me that uh, those Americans being held in prison uh, are more valuable to this administration in prison than they are free. They uh, have made clear, the Trump administration, that by pulling out, by stiffening sanctions, uh, they, they're hoping for regime change. That's their strategy. Uh, how do you react to that? Well, I think that you know, if, if we take a close look at um, you know, the top foreign policy leadership of this administration, you take the president, you take the State Department under Mike Pompeo and John Bolton uh, as national security advisor, I think each one of them has a slightly different plan in their mind. Uh, and I think that uh, you know, Ambassador Bolton would like to see uh, a very violent version of re regime change if necessary. Uh, I think Secretary Pompeo thinks that, uh, you know, sanctions will uh, bring the Iranian regime to their knees and, and um, you know, they'll fade off into the sunset. And I think President Trump plans on, you know, flying to Tehran. He's just waiting for an invitation to, you know, come sit down and have a cheeseburger and sign a deal. Right? Yeah. Would he do that? I can't believe it. I I, you know, I, there was, so there, there, you know, I, I think that there's a, a, a New Yorker profile of uh, of Bolton out right now that uh, says that the Bolton's biggest fear is that uh, the Supreme Leader of Iran sends a letter to Trump. Uh, saying, he loves those letters. He loves the letters. Yeah, he's old school. He likes letters. Returning to your story, um, you you, uh, you ultimately were tried. In, in May of uh, 2000 and... Uh, Starting in May of 2015. Four trial sessions spread out over a three-month period. And you wrote that, that, that you felt real terror during uh, that process. Why? A combination of reasons. First of all, the judge that um, I was assigned to is the same judge who oversees every one of these cases of dual nationals. Uh, his nickname, he's got two nicknames, the Hanging Judge and the Judge of Death. Yeah, um, neither is good. No. Um, oh. He's signed the execution orders of over 600 people, and a lot of those have been carried out. Iran um, executes more, more people per capita than any other country. Um, and you knew all this. Oh, yeah. I mean, this part of my reporting for years. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I, I knew who this guy was, and um, you know, I, I worried not so much that they would execute me, but that I would be given a death sentence and that um, that would make negotiating 
for my release more complicated. Um, I also worried that um, if this deal over the nuclear program came to fruition and I was still in prison uh, and had a sentence, that it would be very difficult to you know, imagine getting me out, just like I explained about people who are in prison there right now. Um, so there was a lot because of Because you were worried that the, that the architecture of the agreement and the relationship would be f fragile and the um, U.S. wouldn't be uh, eager to rock the boat? Not so much that. More that you know, once the, uh, the deal is done, you know, in that grand moment of concessions on both sides, you know, pouring concrete into the nuclear reactors in exchange for the lifting of sanctions and everything else, if prisoners aren't involved, when will they be involved? Mm -hmm. right? And I think that that was um, a concern that a lot of people had. Um, and when the deal was signed in July 2015 and I wasn't released, and not only was I not released, the very next day I was back in court um, was a sign. It was a message being sent to, uh, to Washington. Um, and I think... Uh, At yeah. that point, did you feel abandoned? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I spoke with one of um, Secretary Kerry's top aides a couple of weeks ago, and, and he just asked me, he said, you know, did you, you know, were you pretty pissed off at us at that time? I was like, yeah, I was really pissed off. Uh, I'm not anymore because I've reported the hell out of this story, and I know uh, about as well as anybody uh, what did and didn't happen. There was a parallel set of discussions going on that you didn't know about. That nobody knew about. Mm -hmm. That, you know, the president had um, decided, President and Secretary Kerry had, had kind of come up with about four months into my, uh, into my imprisonment. And actually, my interrogator told me about this. I just didn't believe him. Yeah. Um, and you, 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 a, a, in the fall of 2015, there was this sense that you were going to be released, and, and it didn't happen. So did, that, did you become discouraged at that point? Discouraged and just scared because I knew that the only thing left was the implementation day of the nuclear deal, which was uh, going to be initially January 1st, but it got pushed back because there were uh, different minor details being shifted around. Ultimately, it was January 16th. And, um, you know, I thought to myself, if it doesn't happen then, I could be here for a very long time. And that was the day. That was the day. Um, Describe that. You, you told me before when we were getting set to come out here, that writing this particular chapter of the book was the most difficult uh, part of the whole exercise. Yeah, so about uh, a week, week and a half before I was released, um, the interrogator and his boss came and told me that I was to be released. And they kind of gave me some details. You're going to be traded for other Iranians who are being held in America, along with some other Americans being held here. And I'd heard things like this before. I mean, in, in the 530-something days leading up to it, I'd been told that I would be released within a matter of hours. I'd been told that I'd spend the rest of my life in prison. I'd been told that I'd be hung. I mean, you know, you become a little bit jaded uh, and cynical. Um, but I said to them, I said, if, if any of this is true, my, my mom and my wife will be visiting me tomorrow. There was a scheduled visit. You'll come to that meeting and you're going to tell them exactly what you just told me here. And I don't know what made me think I was in a position to make these kinds yeah, of... Yeah, pretty know, brassy there. But, yeah, but I mean, after a while, you just kind of get to this point where it's like, you know, right. what do I have to lose? Yeah. Right? Very little. But they came. And, um, and I, I'll never forget that my mom and Yegi were so kind of in their faces... Like, why should we believe anything that you said? Everything that you said has been a lie all the way through. But it was clear that they were starting to do damage control, that they were hoping to influence how we would respond when we were out in public, right? Um, and we were told A little that, late for gratitude. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, they... they Finally, on, uh, on, on the 16th, that morning, uh, it was a Saturday, they came and they said, today's the day. 
and there was a whole series of hoops that I had to jump through. You know, I had to do an exit interview with state television that was never aired. Um, and you must not have been a good interview. I wasn't great. I know. have to say, you, sitting here with you, you've improved quite a bit. So. <laughs> Uh, You're good at what you do. Um, better than those guys. <laughs> well, that's, I don't know how to take that. But, uh, so it was, it, it was um, you know, I, there was a lot of elation, but this, the fear was they were telling me that my wife would not be allowed to leave the country with me, uh, that she still had an open case against her, and that she wasn't included in this swap because she wasn't an American citizen. And I had no way of disproving that. So they, they took me to the airport. Uh, they allowed my, my mom and Yegi to come and say uh, goodbye. And uh, you know, I made my mom promise that she wasn't going to leave until Yegi left. Um, and then they took them out of the room. And a few minutes later, uh, a big, bald man in a very nice suit walked in the room. I'd never seen this guy before, and he introduced himself. He said, I'm the Swiss ambassador. And I had no way of checking this information. And the Swiss are the protecting US powers in Iran. So um, after a year and a half of being subjected to Iranian laws as if I was an Iranian, this is the first time I'm being treated as an American. This is my first consular visit. Uh, and he said to me, uh, you know, there's, there's supposed to be three of you, but there's only one. And I thought he was referring to other Americans that were going to be released with me. And he said, no, 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 your, your mother and your wife, they're leaving. They're going with you. And I said, no, no, they're not, you know, my wife's not part of this. They, they explained to me that, you know, she has to do the whole judicial thing here and that they would let her out soon and all that. And he shook his head and he said, Jason, I've been involved in these negotiations for 14 months. Your wife has been a part of this since the very beginning. You know, we specifically wrote that spouses would be included and your wife is the only spouse. Um, so, you know, I was, I was irate and scared. And where were they? Where did they go? Turned out that, that they were locked in a room in the airport, had their, their telephones uh, taken from them, uh, and the Revolutionary Guard were trying to kind of hustle me on the plane and, uh, and get me to take off without them. And what they didn't know uh, was that the plane was not going to take off without everybody. Um, that was about 9.30 at night on Saturday. We didn't end up taking off until 4 o'clock the next day. I'll let you guys read the book. Uh, the last chapter is very hair-raising. Every time I, I start talking about it, my blood pressure goes up. So. Uh, but it was, it was a very incredible uh, experience. Um, this is a podcast, so we can... Uh, Say whatever you want. So uh, I was talking to John Kerry about it, and he said, well, that was some crazy shit. Yeah. <laughs> Argo's got nothing on this. Yeah. Um, so. um, it's exactly what he said. How long, did it, how long did it take you to recover? And I guess I should ask, do you feel like you have recovered from that experience? I, I would say that I'm 93% of the way there. And that I, I don't think that I'll ever get that 7% back. There are little things that... Um, have changed in my brain chemistry that I can't really explain, uh, but I know that, that um, I'm a little bit different. I, I have a hard time going to new places without very clear understanding of where I'm going to be, who's going to meet me there, what I'm going to do. You know, I was a very intrepid person. You don't pick up and move to Iran as a foreign correspondent um, if you aren't. Um, but I can't imagine making that kind of move now. Everything is much more deliberate than it had been in the past. Uh, but finally, I think I recognize the, the sort of dialogue in my own head as me rather than some other guy. And, um, you know, I, I feel like I have a ton to be thankful for. And uh, although that doesn't make any of it go away, it, having that sort of attitude makes it a little bit easier to deal with. You talk about being an intrepid journalist. There are many uh, in the world. Your, your colleague, Jamal Khashoggi, lost his life in a gruesome uh, way. 
uh, talk about that and the state of uh, journalism globally. I think journalism, uh, the journalism that coming, is coming out right now is as good as it's ever been. We have great journalism out in the world. But the state of journalism, uh, both in terms of the risks that we face to do yeah. this work and the resources that are available uh, for people who want to do it, we're in pretty dire straits. Um, and I think, for me, being in, the, in Washington, um, having Jamal murdered in the way that he was, and that was somebody that I was just getting to know. Um, you mentioned that you know, we worked at the same section of the paper. It's, it's a tiny little section. You know, uh, we're just a handful of people. Uh, and to see the way that the Post sprang into action um, after his disappearance and knowing that so much of that was informed by their experience of uh, dealing with my disappearance mm -hmm. uh, was something that I'm still trying to process. Uh, but I, I feel incredibly fortunate to, to work for an organization that cares for its people and goes to bat for its people the way that, that mine does. We talk a lot about Marty Barron. He's an incredible editor. Um, Fred Ryan, our publisher, uh, is a name that not everybody knows, but is really a superstar uh, and, and one of the most important people, uh, I think, right now in holding up uh, our ideals of press freedom and, and, and fighting for them. Uh, we don't think about it very much, but um, I, I worry that that our, our rights of expression are kind of contracting, and um, you worry about a lot if you start to lose them. What about, you, you talked about the advocacy of the Post. Uh, what about the U.S. government right now and its role in uh, Look, enforcing? I, so, you know, the, the, the fallout from Jamal's murder uh, was driven by outrage in the media, uh, and I think that uh, Congress really picked up on that and really understands that uh, our relationship with Saudi Arabia needs to have uh, a long, hard look in the mirror and some shifts. Uh, but unfortunately, the president and his entire uh, national security and, and uh, diplomatic corps have essentially exonerated the Saudi regime of any wrongdoing. Uh, and I think in doing that, they've greenlit, uh, frankly, the murder of journalists uh, in other parts of the world. And I don't think it's, it's any coincidence that we're seeing a rise in the number of jailings, uh, disappearances, murders, and, and, and other types of silencing of journalists all over the world. What are the implications of that for uh, democracy? Not good. <laughs> Um, but I think that... That struck me as a supremely stupid question. When it, as soon as it left, it's like, if you're no, going to ask a leading I mean, question, at least disguise it. Yeah. What we do is, is one of the pillars of, of a strong democracy. I think um, everybody understands that, and if they don't, um, they don't really understand how democracy works. Well, Jason, I started my career in journalism. I revere journalism and I think it is a pillar uh, of democracy, and uh, I uh, so appreciate uh, the sacrifices that you and your wife have made, your family, uh, just to do an honest job of, of reporting. And uh, I recommend your book, Prisoner, uh, to everyone who's listening and everyone in this uh, audience. It is, a, um, it is a gripping story, and you you feel like you're living it with you uh, through this story, and it's a, it's a great read. But I wish you all the best in the future. Thanks so much for having me, David. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, presented by Luminary Media and the University of Chicago Institute of Politics. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Matthew Jaffe. The show is also produced by Pete Jones, Zane Maxwell, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 